welcome everybody to Life Itself. This is a podcast of Faith House Manhattan, and Frankie and I have a wonderful guest today, Uma Gupta. Um, I met Uma uh, at Kripalu as we were both learning how to facilitate workshops really well. And Uma has been a person of depth and generosity and kindness. And and I felt uh, her fate oozing from everything she does. She is a well-known keynote speaker for, for different kinds of businesses, uh, na- you know, national and international. She is a, a consultant, uh, an advisor, trusted advisor of people who make important decisions. And I think... I always have a suspicion that her faith is informing what she's doing. So, so we invited her for this episode of Life Itself. exploring uh, this concept of life itself, meaning that life rules religion, that religion has to submit itself in service of life. And, uh, And every religion is tested and tried and criticized and helped and develops in the context of actually serving our lives from, you know, Monday morning work and Friday evening family time, perhaps, and in our free time. So we invited Uma to tell us about Hinduism and tell us how, you know, what are the, some of the best ideas that uh, people like us who are Christians or humanists or atheists or Muslims uh, can actually pick up and say, hey, I should look it into my tradition and find something like this. Uh, and and find a way to anchor myself in this in this uh, good and wise advice. So Uma, uh, what were you know a handful of best Hindu ideas that uh, served your life and that you think can serve our lives? Well, thank you so much. I think you know you use the word anchored, and I think that's the key word that I'd like to focus on in this uh, session here today. Because what all of us are looking for is a way to anchor our lives, our circumstances, our situations, the characters that come into our lives, the challenges that we face. We want to anchor ourselves in a place where we have the ability, the strength, the wherewithal to deal with all these things uh, that, as you appropriately called, life. So when we look at Hinduism, The essence of Hinduism really starts by saying that Hinduism is a way of life. It's not where we say, here are the things that you need to do to be a Hindu. But more importantly, we begin by saying that every day, every moment, the decisions that you make and the way you live your life is a reflection of your religion and is a reflection of the core principles of Hinduism. So the question then becomes, what are the core principles of Hinduism? And the number one principle that really spans across all religions, all faiths, if I may be bold enough to say so, is the concept of karma. And karma is very 
uh, misunderstood in the uh, in the Hindu religion itself. Even Hindus sometimes misunderstand the concept of karma, and it is certainly uh, very likely to be misunderstood by others as well. Karma really translates into work. That means the work that we do on an everyday basis is the essence of our religion, of our faith, and of who we are. And so karma basically is a concept that says that depending on how you make those moment-to-moment, day-to-day decisions, the big ones, the small ones, the important ones, the unimportant ones, uh, the ones that you uh, make when you're working with people, dealing with people, with your family, with your friends, that is what leads to the concept of karma, how your life will play out in the future and how it has played out in the past. Um, so that is one of the key principles of uh, karma. So, so Uma, what I understand, um, you know, if I would like to translate it into my context, uh, what you have described sounds to me a way I will try to translate and understand it would be karma is work of life and it means living well. It means living well uh, without uh, the big things that matter you know, in our business or relationships or big decisions, but also you know, within us, uh, uh, small things, thoughts, small actions in our lives, they all form us and make us who we are. Uh, so what we put into life actually makes us. Absolutely. So the living well translates into the living authentically, living true to yourself. So the living well can be misinterpreted. So I want to clarify that to mean uh-huh. that living well really means living in an authentic way instead of trying to uh, be everything that society or family or friends or anybody else demands of you. Instead, repeatedly go back to your core self as to who you are and live your life that way. And that ties into the other core principle of Hinduism, which states that you, the individual, the human being, that you are perfect before, because you are made in the image of a higher power, a divine being. And so the that's often very hard for people to digest because they say, well, heck, I'm not perfect, uh, whether it's physically or mentally or morally. Uh, but the principle of Hinduism is that you are perfect because you are in the image of the divine. And the only reason you feel imperfect is because you live in a world of duality. You believe in dualism. And the moment you can take away dualism and there's nothing that's good or bad, you know, you just come back to the core of belief of acceptance. When you take out the duality, then you will see that you're perfect just the way you are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is very um, difficult concept often for people to to grasp, uh, particularly in Western culture, from my Christian tradition, uh, you know, this concept of sin and being broken and not being actually good uh, is something that has been, um, you know, I have I have caught on over over many years of my Christian experience. Uh, but the fact that we are created in the image of God, meaning in the core, you are perfect and whole. Uh, precisely 
then if something gets broken, it has been whole. So it's coming back to that wholeness in which our union with, uh, with, with the larger world or with God is actually um, overcomes this duality. That's very true because when you watch children, you see that they don't see imperfections in themselves. So if you, if you watch a toddler, a toddler is not getting up in the morning and saying, well, I'm too fat or I'm too thin or I'm not rich enough or I don't have a great car or whatever else that may be. They are very playful and they do genuinely believe that who they are is just fine. That's why you see their interactions to be so appealing, so heartwarming, because they are not out there to prove anything to anybody else. They are not trying to imitate somebody else. They are just happy mm -hmm. with who mm -hmm. they are and what they do. And it's just over the years, as we grow up, society repeatedly tells us that you're not good enough or that you have to be like somebody else or that you have to achieve something in order to be worthy. And mm -hmm. the fundamental tenet of Hinduism is that, uh, and, the, and the way it's said in Sanskrit is tattvam asi, tattvam asi, that, you are that, you are whole, you are complete. And so if you leave out the duality and if you leave out this constant struggle of what we call maya, you will mm -hmm. find that you're perfectly aligned with whatever is divine and pure and peaceful. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's great. That's karma uh, work, um, living authentically and accepting, you know, res not resisting, but learning instead of passing judgment and you accepting that within you there's wholeness, that this hidden wholeness, as Parker Palmer would put it, hidden wholeness in us. So what would be, what would be another idea that you, that surfaces for you and, and has been working for you over, over your lifetime? I think one of the most uh, appealing things for me has been that even though I'm a Hindu, the, the tenet of Hinduism is that you really don't need any religion. Hinduism does not claim that you need to be a Hindu. There is no way that you can convert into Hinduism. There are no uh, protocols or rules or regulations or traditions that you have to follow to convert uh, into Hinduism. It simply says that who you are is whole. And so if you want to be a Hindu, one of the fundamental uh, tenets of Hinduism is that all beings, regardless of their religion, their faith, their class in life, whatever that may be, there is divinity in everybody. And if you are a true Hindu, your, your job is to see the goodness in everybody. And as other religions say, uh, Hinduism repeatedly relates the fact that all rivers flow into the ocean. So whether you are of a certain faith, whether it's Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Jews, whatever it may be, that eventually we are all seeking this alignment with the divine. So we don't require, although many Hindus don't always follow this principle, we don't require or demand any traditions, any rituals, any rules, any must-dos, cannot-dos. There's nothing like that. Hinduism repeatedly says, find the goodness in you and practice the goodness in every day, in every which way that you can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's one of one of the you know one of the misunderstandings of Hinduism I have encountered all the time is this concept of of idolatry mm-hmm. and uh, and the meaning of what what's an idol. Mm-hmm. And and I used to in my early Christian days say, oh well, you know Hindus have a lot of gods, so they're idolaters. They they have this idols and it's it's ridiculous how can a, a small <laughs> thing you know be a, yeah. how, how can you make how can you make a statue yeah. into a god sure. Sure. And, then, and then i realized over time that 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 my understanding of what hindus mean by idol and and my understanding of idolatry was as uninformed as it was uh, self-serving <laughs> so um so tell me about like you know, instead of me saying it, you know, I'd like to hear from you. Like, what is the, what's this concept of, you know, why is such a diversity there of gods? And what does that mean? That's a very, very good question. And I think I often tell, you know, to our temple here, sometimes we have people of other faiths visit our temple. And I often joke to my friends that I'm sure it's a scary experience for them. Because when you walk into a temple, you see so many idols uh, in, the, in the Hindu temple. And there are different reasons why it has evolved this way. Uh, the first thing to know is that the idols really represent the different virtues that we as human beings are trying to emulate. So in the early years, what was said was that that for many people, only few individuals really have the capacity to focus on spirituality. Uh, So religion is really a vehicle, if you will. Uh, In the ocean of life, it's a boat, it's a ship that you can use to get from one shore to the other. So religion was really launched as an effort to help those who may not be that evolved, whether spiritually or intellectually or education-wise, to really say, let's give you some simple tools that you can use to really attain a higher spiritual level. So when you look at the rituals within Hinduism, the focus of the rituals is really to help you to concentrate on the uh, on the uh, on the divine. So many of these rituals have now evolved uh, have now evolved into very rigorous rules and do's and don'ts. But that was the fundamental purpose why we had rituals. The same reason evolved for idols. That rather than saying there is this divine, this abstract concept that you may not be able to visualize or see or touch or feel, we needed idols in order to help people to focus and to gravitate toward one symbol, one visual symbol that would help them to focus and to drive their spiritual energies toward. That was the second reason why idols evolved. The third reason when you see in Hinduism and when you see idols in Hinduism, you will see that almost always there is some animal that is also associated with the idol. That's why for the Hindus, the cow is so sacred. You see the snake around uh, Lord Shiva. You see uh, little mouse sitting next to Lord Ganesh. You see the elephant as a part of Lord Ganesh. You see the tiger as part of um, what we call Devi or the goddess. So Mm -hmm. one of the messages that they wanted to communicate was that 
that all living beings are a reflection of the divinity. So the idols were never in isolation. They were in human form to help people relate to spirituality, but we also brought animals into uh, the, the kingdom of divinity to help people understand that an animal is also a form of the divine being. Mm -hmm. that, that's, uh, that's, for me, that, you know, when I would hear something like that many years ago, it would be sort of scary for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but right now it's, it's beautiful because idols are actually um, a clever and useful and, uh, uh, how would I say, almost sacred a way of communicating. Uh, idols are windows into the same reality, Brahman. So you can have a million of windows into, into reality that is Brahman, which would be closest to the concept of God in Christian faith, for example. Uh, and, and so they, they, serve, they serve the purpose of, uh, of, of communicating, understanding, making step the same way we have a trinity in Christianity or, for example, in, in Islam, there's 99 names of God. So there is a way to talk about it. There's a way to understand it. So there's an interesting uh, so, almost parallel there between those, whether they're reminding of aspects of how we interact with God via the Trinity or the, the attributes of God via the 99 names of Islam or even iconography uh, you know, in, in the Orthodox traditions. I, I see there's a lot of parallels there that I, I hadn't thought of before. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you're encouraged in Hinduism. Uh, and again, many Hindus not uh, practice this but you're encouraged to move away from idol worship and to really focus on the divine as uh, all-pervading or omnipotent mm. and omnipresent. And that is a higher elevation in your spirituality that shows your growth in your spiritual dimension when you can envision the divine in everything that you see and do rather than saying, I need to... Uh, go and worship this particular idol in this particular location. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, thank you. Thank you, Uma. W what I'm drawn to is um, to, you know, probe a little further on this concept of practice, because uh, mm. you mentioned it a couple of times, and uh, in, in some faith traditions, uh, like, for example, in uh, maybe Abrahamic tradition, the focus is a lot on on, on words, on meanings. It's very cognitive kind of conversation. Uh, and revelation and faith comes through, like, what do you believe? Well, we believe these things. Yeah, but you're saying in Hinduism, you don't have to believe anything. Uh, and so that practice is a, in some way a vessel of faith. It holds faith together. Uh, and so what would be some of the practices that you suggest every human being would benefit from uh, that you have uh, found in Hinduism. Uh, maybe a modification of such practice. Uh, you, can, you can also share that. But what would, what would come out as important to you? Well, I should first and foremost warn uh, your listeners that I may not be the typical Hindu uh, in the sense that I have my core beliefs and practices of Hinduism over the years. And you know, Samir, I have to uh, admire you for saying that in the, you know, when you were young, you're still young, but in the earlier years, our views of religion, 
our views of how superior one's religion may be to others. Uh, those views, as we grow spiritually, they fall off along the sidewalks, if you will, right? We realize that it's easy to be religious, but the real challenge is to be spiritual, is to be in touch with the divine on an everyday basis. That is, is, is our real call. And what can we do to get there becomes a real question. So I, I do want your listeners to know that I may not be uh, the most typical uh, Hindu, but here's what I believe in, and this is what my practice revolves around. For me, the most important thing is to spend time with oneself, listening to one's own reflections of one's thoughts. Uh, I, I probe my, uh, those that I work with to go to their own inner well of wisdom. We have become a society where we are repeatedly, we repeatedly called upon to think that somehow somebody else is wiser than we are. Somehow somebody else has the answers to the questions that we are struggling with. Uh, and that if we go and ask somebody else, that somehow their advice is more valuable and more meaningful than what our own inner wisdom tells us. And so even with those that I work with, whether it's the, the uh, leaders or with others who are struggling with other issues, I tell them, you need to be quiet, silent. You need to listen to your own thoughts and you need to keep digging deeper. So for me, the first practice is silence and time with oneself. For me, that comes when I'm in touch with nature. So when, even when I'm working on a project or something, uh, after about 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes, I'll go spend and walk on the, with my bare feet on the grass or just be in the yard or do something to go back in touch with nature. So that's a first practice for me when I get in touch with my own mm -hmm. um, spiritual self. So the, the quiet time, the silence, we call it, it could be meditation, it could be mindfulness. It's the ability to really listen your thoughts, to get in touch with your thoughts, to be non-judgmental about your thoughts, and to simply say, what is it that I need to know and listen to? And the answers don't always evolve in the first sitting or the second, but eventually we achieve our own clarity, and that is the greatest gift that we can give ourselves. So that would, that is my first and most important practice. I'm seeing that some of these elements of mindfulness now are emanating into other parts of society. And I've always been really curious to know, um, and, and, and in some senses, it, it may parallel in a more nuanced way some of the you know adoptions of, of what people are calling uh, yoga, but the asanas as, a, as an approach to sort of creating mindfulness and, and wellness and everything else. And there's this really interesting tension between the two because at times it feels like you know, um, are we are we getting to to use a really wonderful aspect to another tradition and, and enjoy and benefit from it? Um, but and or at what point does that become like cultural appropriation when something's taken out of its context and sort of trivialized in this way? And between both the asana side of yoga and mindfulness, I've I've tried to be mindful <laughs> in a sense of that sort of where that division happens, and I'm just curious. 
Um, is that something you're ever thinking about or how have you navigated those spaces? So I think the, the, the warning sign, and I've heard this repeatedly from other leaders uh, that I follow, the warning sign is when we pay a lot of attention to the tools, to the names, to the categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, our, and so uh, it's, it doesn't matter whether it's a yoga, it's a asana, it doesn't matter. And there are people who don't do any of those things, right? And they are still very mindful, very cognizant of the world in which they live and their role and their, uh, and their virtues and their vices. So for me, I'm always on high alert when somebody starts to talk about what are the tools and start to compare the tools or the purity of the tools or the value of the tools. Uh, my belief is you will find the right tool once you know what is it that you're in search of. Right, uh, a nail and a hammer does not work for everything, right? But once you one, one, when you know what is it that you want to build, then you can go look for the right tool. And often, uh, again, this is my belief, often the tool appears for you um, in in its own subtle way. It shows up as one of the possibilities for you, because I believe that when we are really in search of a spiritual dimension. Uh, whatever we need, whether it's the teacher or the tool uh, or the time or our own thinking, our thoughts shift in just some amazing ways. So, um, and you know, we live in a society where everything has a marketing component to it, right? Mm-hmm. Even, even when you talk about spirituality, there's a marketing component. When mm-hmm. you talk about mindfulness, there's a marketing component. You talk about anything, there's a marketing component. And I think we have all become, in, I can't say all, I think many of us have become somewhat jaded and somewhat prone to latch on to these marketing things. So uh, my, my plea, my request, and I'm on high alert when I see this marketing pitch or when there's a tool that somebody's saying, this is the way you can get there, uh, I don't buy into it. I think that was a long-winded answer to your no, I, I <laughs> think it was very question. Interesting. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. that's because it, 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 I think you've mapped <laughs> out there's a fine balance between the two sides of, of trying to navigate that space. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what comes to my mind, uh, Uma, about, the, about this uh, coming to your senses, coming to be with yourself and by yourself and learning to listen to your own life uh, uh, and your own wisdom uh, is 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 this contrast between that and a society. We have a, such a chaotic mind at a time when the world is in, a, in big chaos because of the growth of information and knowledge and, and digital disruption we are all experiencing in all aspects of our lives. And it doesn't matter how old you are, if you're even two-year-old, you're already affected by, by this uh, um, avalanche of, of, of digital information. So... So this coming to your senses, is, to your inner wisdom, is something that is irreduce, coming back to what's irreducibly you and irreducibly human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, it is reclaiming what no machine or no society or no environment can take away. It is, it is actually doubling down, sort of investing into 
into what is uh, what is what is uh, yeah irreducibly human and irreducibly yours. I don't know how else would I put it, and, mm -hmm. and that's very valuable. It doesn't matter it, it, it relationships, workplace, uh, in performance at workplace, uh, you know, strength of your family life, uh, showing up as yourself. Uh, it, it's priceless, I think. You know, I think you commented on something that we hear very frequently, the digital attacks on our lives. And mm -hmm. it's worthwhile to step back and see, did somebody do this to us or is this something we have done to ourselves? So I'll give you a simple example, which I speak about quite frequently. When we get up in the morning, nobody has said, us that if you don't have your iPhone right next to you, that that would be the end of the world. Right? We yes. have opted, we have opted to give away ourselves, our time, our attention, our focus. We have willingly, knowingly given that what is most precious to us, we have opened the treasure box for the thieves to come in and to steal. The mm -hmm. most important thing in our lives is what we pay attention to and where we focus, right? Because attention and focus is what drives our energy toward. Whatever you're paying attention to, that's where your energy flows. Whatever you're focusing on. So right now, all three of us our energies are focused on this particular conversation, mm -hmm. right? So we have opened our treasure box and said, all the thieves, please come in and take away attention, take away my focus, take away my ability to think, take away the quiet time that I need. In fact, there was an article very recently where they said, it was in the New York Times, where they said that people felt highly uncomfortable if they were asked to sit alone in a room by themselves without any devices for more than six minutes. I totally believe that and would also be very guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, actually, Uma, that, that, I, I don't know if we're talking about the same article, but it was in the last couple, several, I don't know, it was last year actually, came, they actually offered uh, they measured uh, unpleasant stimuli on people and people rated the stimuli and those who rated uh, electric shock the worst, they offered them in a waiting room um, to uh, give themselves electric shock or do nothing. Mm. And people, people could be with, people would rather electrocute themselves, although they rated that as the most unpleasant thing they have experienced out of 20 stimuli. They would still electrify, electrocute themselves. So why not? They're waiting there, and they are just—they uh, don't know what to do with themselves. And uh, and far more men actually than women. They didn't figure that one out. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, we have come to a place where where pain uh, is is more interesting to us than than facing our own thoughts. Well, thank you so much, Uma, for being on with us. It's been a, a pleasure having this conversation, and we are just uh, 
Well, there's a lot of interesting things there, both um, to think about not just in how you know we can engage with some of these ideas that you share, but even just kind of reflect on ourselves and our own inability to you know, be still, to listen, uh, to engage. So uh, thank you immensely. And uh, Samir, any other thoughts? So those of you who are listening to this and would like to learn more about and from UMA, you can go to the website umagupta.com. That's U-M-A-G-U-P-T-A.com. <laughs>